Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen, it's for December 2013. I am writer, hyphen, critic, hyphen, heroine, peppermint-flavoured heroine, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there, I'm writer, hyphen, director, hyphen, uh, Oscar chances already blown, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us this month is our very special guest. I'm Mel Campbell, I'm a reviewer, hyphen, author, hyphen, journalist, hyphen, critic, hyphen, cat lover... Hyphen lazy bitch. <laughs> Nicely done. Well, the last one definitely qualifies you for this podcast. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. It's, uh, we appreciate you coming on for this December edition where, as with every year, we talk about the latest instalment of The Hobbit. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a tradition we've been running since the late 90s. I wish the Eagles could have taken me all the way. <laughs> oh, the Eagles. So we're going to start with the <laughs> Okay, so I recently rewatched the first Hobbit, yeah. and I was so annoyed by the Eagles, I just can't tell you. <laughs> why did they have to? Okay, number one, why couldn't they take them all the way? And number two, why did they have to drop them on the top of that mountain that it's going to take them at least a week to climb down from? The- They've got a running time to make, Mel. Don't they, 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 ask okay. those questions. Okay, the, the Eagles <laughs> thing is they're not like a taxi service. You can't just say, fly me halfway across the equivalent of Europe to get me to this destination. You can, in some circumstances, say, I'm in mortal peril. Could you please just get me out of this mortal peril? It's like the difference between um, asking a friend for a lift or asking them to help you move house or drive you to the airport or drive you to Sydney. It's like you can kind of get away with getting a lift if you're, in, if you're stuck. But you can't ask them to drive you across the country. But like Mel said, they don't. If you say drive me to Sydney, it's like I can only drive you to the airport, but I'm going to drop you off in the middle of Hume Highway. Exactly. Yeah, but the, view, the <laughs> views from Hume Highway aren't as great. <laughs> you can almost see Sydney from from the middle of the Hume Highway. Yeah, well, that's true. But yes, do we are we more enamoured by this? Because the last one, if you discount me, wasn't that well received by everyone. I liked uh, the first one a did. lot. Did you? I didn't. Yeah. No, I was so disappointed. Largely for me, it was the 48 frames a second, which I just wasn't ready for that look. Um, I'm used to that kind of glamour that um, film offers and the kind of crispness of it. I tend to associate with TV productions. The version that we saw, was that 48 no, frames that was a second? See, maybe that's why I liked it so much better than the first one. There it is. Could be. I don't know. I thought that also uh, so much of the action in the first one seemed like padding to me. It seemed like fan service. I mean, the, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of fan service in the second one, i.e. Legolas. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't seem to have that same kind of we're just having this chase or this fight scene or this long conversation just to kind of pad out time or to set up for the, um, you know, Lord of the Rings to come. Well, my, my theory on that is that it came from the response to, to Lord of the Rings. A lot of people were like, oh, I want to spend more time in that world. Like, uh, you know, Rivendell. You see Rivendell and you're like, oh, can we just spend an hour here? Mm. Even though I love both of the Hobbit films so far, I think, you know, Jackson's folly might be giving people what they want, not leaving them wanting more. Mm. Mm. I think my main thing is the the horde of coins that the dragon uh, sort of... It reminded me of, <laughs> of uh, Scrooge, Scrooge McDuck. Yes, yes. And his money <laughs> um, I think that that really caught my imagination, you know, the, the idea that you dive off a diving board and swim around <laughs> in the coins. <laughs> but I, I, think, I think they did the horde so well, the way that every, every time you move, like the chinking of the coins sets up this chain reaction. Yeah, um, that was pretty great. Yeah, and all the, the treasures that are just kind of 
tossed around in yeah. this giant thing. Like, can I <laughs> can I actually be weird here? Like, uh, why stop now? More yeah. than usual. I didn't like this as much as I liked the first one. Yeah. How come? I know. I because there was something about the return to the first one, and I, I agree that I think both of these two Hobbit films are too long, but. The first one, there was something about it, it was it was a it was a, a gentle return to the world that I really loved. Whereas this one, I felt this one felt like Peter Jackson's Gore Verbinski film. It was just kind of giant action <laughs> yeah. sequence upon giant action sequence upon giant action sequence upon giant action sequence, but a bit too overloaded with CGI. I feel the first four films felt a lot more practical. This mm. one felt. Like I, it was almost all CG, and yeah. that kind of bothered me. And 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 like the action sequences were really re- like Verbinski stuff. They were really well directed and a lot of fun. But I just didn't feel that there was anything. There were there was very little foundation there. So I got to the end of it, and I, look, I think it's got a killer cliffhanger ending. Um, this second Hobbit film that actually bothered me a little. Oh, really? All the other films at least feel like endings. This felt like cuts of black come back next week, and I was like, oh, that's I can live with that. But it's it's a bit different to the other. The other yeah. films that at least had, you know, felt like you'd come to a conclusion. The the CGI element, like, I, do, I, I agree with the Verbinski comparison. Jackson certainly reserved the Jack, Jackie Chan-esque stunts for the elf. <laughs> yeah, in the, yes. in the, You know, yes. uh, Legolas could do that. Uh, seeing the dwarves do that sort mm. of maybe mm. takes away from the realism a bit how everything's a last-minute grab for the, oh, I just I hit the button at the right time, I pulled that thing, I went down the right thing. But given that um, uh, The Hobbit is such a lighter story than Lord of the Rings, I actually don't mind that it's got that lighter touch to it. Yeah, see, I felt the first one felt a lot lighter than this. This felt like uh, this felt like almost like a rebuttal to people who thought there wasn't enough action in the first one. Mm. Whereas I liked the gentle hobbity tone of the first one. I felt this one lacked that. And, and, and there were a few bendy visual effects too, particularly with The Hobbits. You know, the stretching in weird ways and... I where didn't it's notice like, that mm, so much. More time at the render farm. I'm I'm just enjoying Bilbo as well. Yeah, um, I love Martin Freeman's Freeman. the MVP. He is just He's great. Like, yeah, I've always loved him, but like in this film in particular, he just like the way he brings those comedic instincts to terrified moments. Yeah, and sort of makes you laugh but be terrified at the same time. And the hard edge that hits him at moments as well, like mm. in various moments when yeah, he when he's in mean. the grip of the ring and stuff. It's like ooh, is. Not to be messed with. Like, yeah. he really gives off that steel, which you don't expect. Yes. He's such a light guy and his lightness of touch is so dead on. I do find it interesting that it came out on Boxing Day the same day as this other great fantasy film for an older audience, uh, Secret Life of Walter Mitty. <laughs> <laughs> I love your segue, Lee. That was a lovely segue. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I love that Mel I, made I, reference to the segues. I didn't have to do anything. I just sat here. <laughs> <laughs> I saw your lips moving. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, do you know what? I was expecting The Secret Life of Walter Mitty to be so bad. I'd kind of imagined a plot for it in my head, which was so much worse than the actual plot that that was really enough to impress me, basically. I had this idea that, um, oh, you know, because the, the whole plot is that Walter Mitty has this mysterious negative that's going to be the last ever cover of Life magazine, I had this horrible idea that he was going to go on this terrible odyssey looking for the negative, looking for Sean Penn, the, the yogi-like mm. photographer. And when he, at the moment when he finally found Sean Penn, he'd whip around with a camera in his hands and shoot Walter Mitty at that moment of their meeting oh, and that all the knowledge that Walter had accrued in his odyssey would somehow be reflected in his face and that would be like all the knowledge that... 
Life magazine has, you know, mm. given readers over the years. I seriously thought that that was going to be the plot, and I'm super glad that it isn't. <laughs> I'm slightly disturbed at the amount of time you spend writing terrible movies in your head. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it's a good way to to be either, you know, not disappointed when a film is better than my terrible version of it or pleasantly sort of gratified that I'm in line with Hollywood's uh, script writing expectations. I'll be on the blacklist, you guys. Just Just wait. There's something interesting about the way Ben Stiller constructs his films. I think his last few films, he's, he's hit upon some sort of secret formula there's something catnip like about the way his films people have to see them and and i feel that a bit as well you you saw the setup and the trailer and the poster and everything for zoolander like that's such a great concept i have to see that tropic thunder provoked that in people Uh, people are going nuts for the idea of walter Mitty. this you know this inspirational it's funny but it's also it'll lift your spirits it's He's done something, it's almost it, alchemy. It's the visual effects side as well. It's the whole fantasist thing mm. as well. Because you're seeing these kind of epic vistas and like it, it's really quite a imp- physically impressive film mm. yeah. in terms of the location work, in terms of the big visual effects, in terms of making fun at a couple of you know, recent kind of films. And it, oh, mercy. I've just remembered the, the, the reference, the Benjamin, Benjamin, Button, the Benjamin yeah. Button thing. I laughed so hard. At so that. did I, but that's a, that was a weird tonal shift. It was. It? But it was also, strange. what I liked about it is that it wasn't afraid to go a few years back mm. for a film to take the piss out of. It wasn't like, oh, we have to take the piss out of only a recent movie. Yeah. It's like... Mm. You can imagine that Benjamin Button had just been annoying the filmmakers ever since it came out and they're like, we'll find a way to ridicule this as richly as it deserves. And that's what I liked as well is that Benjamin Button was so pompous that it it so richly deserved the mockery that it gets in Walter Mitty, but also because you weren't expecting that kind of mockery to happen in Walter Mitty. I thought it was going to be a much more earnest film as my fake script for Mm. it uh, demonstrates. Well, the rest of it kind of is. Yeah, I think it's very sincere. But I think it strikes a nice balance between um, sincerity and mawkishness. Like, I was saying that it reminds me of a male version of Eat, Pray, Love, which I know... You've got to bear no, with me with this comparison because it's about sort of a search for self-actualization through travel and through meeting mystic people along the way. Mm-hmm. But what I liked about it is that it's it's not um, mawkish in the way that Eat, Pray, Love was and it wasn't exploitative, I think, in the way Eat, Pray, Eat, Pray Love was using the world as just a pretty backdrop for the protagonist to, you know, find herself. I like that Walter already has this crazy world in his head and it's kind of about reconciling his fantasies with his real life. If anything jarred in the film for me, it was that Walter got too cool too quickly because he's, at the beginning, a real nerd. He's Mm. got, uh, you know, it's like... It's like a trench coat, but it's a trench jacket. Yeah. That's his kind yeah. of jacket, and he's got this metal briefcase and, and a short sleeve shirt, which is, you know, Hollywood signifier for <laughs> nerds. Yeah. yeah. And he literally goes into fugues. Mm. Like, he li- like they call it zoning out. He yeah, literally yeah. goes into these fugues where he stops and stares into space for who knows how long. Yeah. And has these fantasies. But he also, his big thing is that he wants to travel, and that's resolved about 20 minutes into the film. Yeah, but also I think that um, from a young age he had to take on responsibility and become an adult and for him that seems to have involved giving up 
the pleasures of life and doing only things that he was obliged to do. Mm. And so one of the things he rediscovers along the way is to do things for fun and for pleasure and to be more playful. I mean, that's why his fantasies are so playful because he you mm. know, can't express that in his real life. This was my main problem with the film. It's that the fantasy and the reality were almost indistinguishable at times. Like, his journey around the world was, like, there was a point where my partner and I were sort of saying which was during the film, is this still in his head? Like, a lot of the Iceland stuff and drinking out of the boots and the whole karaoke yeah. thing and the thing, and I'm just like... I thought that was going to be revealed that it was all still in yeah, his head. This too, yeah, this feels as much of the fantasy, as much fantasy as the stuff that's in his head. Which and says a lot about what they're saying, is that it's just, you've got to stop living in a fantasy and live in reality, but our reality is a nice, safe Hollywood fantasy. Yeah. Which is what bothered me about the film a lot, I think. That was my one point of discount. Like otherwise I thought the film was, was a lot of fun and very sweet and 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 Kristen Wiig's terrific and Stiller's great and I, I do like Stiller as a director and I think he really um, mm. uses uses his capacity for both humour and pathos really well. Um, but yeah, it, it was just that troubled me. That thing, it's like I can't become too invested in this reality because it feels much too fantastical. Mm. So also at this month was American Hustle aka I Love You Marty. Um, I actually <laughs> want to watch David O. Russell and P.T. Anderson duel it out for Scorsese's affections. Yeah. I think that's inevitable at this point. It's going to be a lot of whip pans and quick dollies in. Yeah. <laughs> it's a giant sloppy kiss to Marty. And that's one of the things I enjoyed about it. Yeah. Like, I think, I think the prestige clothing of this film has everybody confused. I think it's just a total... I think it's as, as much a popcorn flick as anything that comes out during the summer. I, mm. Like, I, I felt it was really kind of basic in terms of its both its construction and its message you know like it's that know your limits don't get any go, don't get in over your head and be true to yourself and don't you know and I, I sort of felt that that was kind of about where the message was kind of lying mm. I don't think it goes any deeper than that um it's just that it has this incredible A-list cast who are all brilliant in the film mm. the performances are the main reason to see this film the performances and the Martin Scorsese flourishes. Well, for me, the hairstyles are the reason to see the <laughs> yeah. film. They'd be called American Hairstyle. No, um, yes. It was a film that uh, the production design and the costume and, and hair and makeup was so important to character and, and the use of music. I mean, you might uh, disagree with me about the use of the music and we can sort of go back to that, but I love the way that every different character had their own sort of hairstyle and the kind of amount of dishevelment versus put-togetherness mm. that they had sort of was indicative of their emotional state at any um, given time. I love that scene where you see... Bradley Cooper in his little man curlers. Yeah. And it's, it's both pathetic and and almost pitiable at once because you see him as the, the him that he doesn't want the world to see and then he's like the, the macho man, you know, yeah. when he's out in public. But then when you see, like, uh, J-Law with her, like, dishevelled hair and her weird tracksuits and she's burnt one side of her face on her, you know, home uh, tanning lamp <laughs> but while drinking her special drink. Uh, I like that that's, that's also indicative of her character, but she's sloppy like that in public as well. Mm. It's like her sartorial sloppiness when she's at home indicates the kind of the sloppiness that will actually become pivotal, pivotal mm. in the plot. Yeah. Uh, later on. And it, and the, the, the film begins, obviously, with uh, Christian Bale's epic comb-over. 
And that was such a, a wonderful storied hairstyle. But I find it was interesting because he had he put so much effort into putting this comb over together. Mm. And yet his clothing was basically cobbled together from anything he could take from the laundromat. Mm. <laughs> it's like nothing ever matched. It's like his shirts and these suits were always completely incongruous. Almost so, to make people underestimate him. I do think that opening shot, though, does say a lot about the film itself because I think yep. there is a subtext to it and that subtext is, isn't this shallow? And, ah. and when when that that opening shot starts on Bale's stomach and then pans up to mm. his face, and I was really jarred by that because I thought, oh, don't do that because it's like the thing that David Mamet complains about when you show hands playing a piano and then pan up to show that the actor actually learned the piano. Mm. Yeah. And you're taken out of the moment because you go, okay, you're just you just did that shot to prove something to me, and I thought that's what they'd done to prove that Bale had put on this weight, but he keeps repeating that shot. Amy Adams walks down. And we pan up her. There's that famous shot from from the trailer of Jennifer Lawrence in that dress. You know, the the pan up as she walks or the tilt up. And he keeps doing it. And I realise there's this phrase that keeps getting repeated by the characters, this meaningless phrase, which is from the feet up, whenever they refer to their operations. Mm, mm. And he's saying, and he's using that to say, yeah, no, that doesn't mean anything. And here are some shots to drive this home to show that they're all empty people who don't really understand. They they think there's a deeper meaning there, but there really isn't. Mm. Um, and I think that that's echoed in the music choices, which uh, I found hilariously appropriate because they're the music choices that these people would make. Yes. They're all the most obvious choices yeah, in the world. Yeah. And I think that's so deliberate and so funny. Because, right. I, yeah, I really enjoyed the use, the use of the music too. Sometimes more on the nose than others. But, yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> I actually really like them. Mm. Yeah, well, you're talking about the camera moves, Lee. Mm. Um, I've always noticed with Russell, he focuses on people's hands he, he will just sort of drop the gaze of the camera away from the face and just look at their hands while they're sort of fidgeting around when they're talking. I noticed this in um, The Fighter and also in Silver Linings Playbook and he's mm. doing it again with this. But I didn't notice the, the kind of panning or tilting that you're describing. It's, yeah, in this film in particular, at least three times that I noticed, there might be more where, yeah, each character is sort of not introduced but sort of established with this tilt up their body. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, the contrast between the the failed vanity of, of Bale's gut and then the carefully maintained vanity of mm. his head is also like a, a comment on the way that he's a man of, of appearances, of projecting things out into the world, but that he's not successful in doing that, that people can see through him. But, I mean, in the end, I think that um, the most deluded character in the film, I thought, was Bradley Cooper's oh. character. Mm. And you see, you also see the way that um, Bradley Cooper thinks that he's so much better than his poor henpecked boss Louis C.K., mm. um, whose performance has a wonderful dignity to it yes. that I just loved so much. And then there's this absurd <laughs> anecdote about this ice fishing trip that yeah, he went really. on as a kid um, <laughs> that you're thinking is going to have some Coen Brothers type, uh, you know, meaning to it, but we we never really find out. No, no, no. Because the, the the point is that Bradley Cooper keeps trying to second guess it and then keeps getting it wrong, and then never gets to find out because he's always jumping ahead yeah. with the incorrect. Yeah, it's it's beautifully Bradley good. Cooper's imitation of oh my Louis C.K. priceless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like this film, I have to say, like for all its you know all, all the things that people are sort of attaching to this film. I just think it's bloody funny. Yeah, and I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that amount of fun because no. I think I'd been thinking it was going to be a grittier voyage into the underbelly of the American dream or something. Mm. And it was really just a, a caper film. 
Yeah. Um, and, and I wasn't, wasn't expecting there to be so many just laugh-out-loud moments in it as well. Most of them um, courtesy of Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> Gee, she's funny yeah, in this. Yeah, live and let die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Well, not just that, but the science oven yes. as well. Yes. I've got the science oven scene as my Facebook uh, sort of background That's page correct. now. Jesus, funny. Adopted an art to put metal in the science oven. So it's uh, December again, and as, uh, as is custom, everybody puts up trees and buys presents for each other and uh, compiles top ten films of the year list. Everybody does this, right? Sure. But uh, we'll be just going to our top fives today because, you know, we only have a little bit of amount of time for this. And I thought I'd let our guest go first. Oh, it's such a tough choice, Paul. I was agonising over this. I really couldn't narrow it down from a top ten, so I'm just going to list five films out of my top ten that I really, really liked. Okay, and I might as well start with the one that took me by surprise, wasn't expecting to love this, the way I viscerally loved it, Pacific Rim. Oh, wow. wow. Now, I remember walking out of the cinema and seeing Lee at the end, standing in the foyer. (laughs) I had this big, goofy smile on my face. (laughs) Lee had a sort of not smile on his face. And I thought, oh, people didn't really like this as much as me, did they? But for me, it it just got me in the feels. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, Pacific Rim, loved, loved, loved that. Mm -hmm. American Hustle, we were just talking about that. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was... A really fun time out at the movies. Uh, I thought the characters were wonderful and the production and costume and makeup and hair was just top notch. So that's one. Mud, starring Matthew McConaughey. So there was that. And then other films that that just gave me amazing sort of visceral reactions that I wasn't expecting. Um, Enough Said. Mm. Oh, wow. And then maybe I'll round it off with Short Term 12. Oh, nice. I cried in that too. And that was yet another kind of very low-key American indie character-driven film. It's a pragmatic film, but I I just found it deeply moving. I cried in that one too. I mean, so that's just half of the films that that I really loved, but they're the ones that occur to me right now. Was there any of those a number one? Any of those a clear leader for your film? Oh, look, for sheer feels, it would have to be... (laughs) have to be Pacific Rim, but oh that God. seems like such an inappropriate film to call my best of the Love year. It. Mr. Zachariah, lay it on me. All right. Uh, number five was the documentary The Act of Killing about the Indonesian uh-huh. massacre. Extraordinary watching uh, people who'd committed that come to terms with what they'd done um, and really should have been the best documentary of the year, except for the fact that Sarah Polly made number four, <laughs> Stories We Tell, which uh, she is scarily talented. The fact that it's not just an interesting story, but it's like a treatise on the process of remembering and telling stories itself is just... And the documentary form. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The documentary form. It's, it's, it's mind-blowingly good. Yeah. Number three is the first ever film made in Saudi Arabia, Watched uh-huh. 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 Yes. Uh, which is just perfection. Number two, as a huge, huge uh, Joss Whedon fan... And as a Shakespeare obsessive, <laughs> oh, nice Pacific Rim. No, uh, <laughs> much ado about nothing. It was like I mean, it was like it, it was genetically engineered for me. So I'm really glad everyone else got to watch it as well. <laughs> and number one, uh, the one film this year that I think above all others uh, changed uh, filmmaking, pushed it into new areas because it's getting harder and harder to do so. I think there's one person 
who is who is leagues ahead of the rest of us, and that's Shane Carruth. Um, oh, wow. I forgot to say. God damn it! Yeah, that's an amazing film. Upstream color. Yep, that's my number one of the year. Wow. I, I think he's on a different plane to the rest of us. Um, so yeah, that's my that's my top five. Nice. So Paul, mm-hmm. give us give us your five. My five. Uh, number five is a film that screened at MIFF this year that the world at large won't get to see until the second half of next year, but I think it's almost the perfect midnight movie and says more about where uh, the the American kind of condition is at the moment than any other film Walter that came Mitty? out this year. No. <laughs> and that's Cheap Thrills. Right. Which is this amazing, visceral ride that just spirals completely out of control um i don't want to give away anything about sure. it i think it's one for the audience to discover but trust me when it comes out next year see cheap thrills my number four film of the year is stories we tell uh-huh um yeah everything you said just exquisite stuff um and just such an interesting story it's like somebody it's it, it's like the the best episodes of something like This American Life. Mm. It's just this great yeah. journey. It's like, and then this happened. And you're like, what? what? <laughs> Number three is my favourite studio film of the year, which may come as a surprise to some, was Captain Phillips. Oh, yeah. I, I did not like, in a film, uh, there were some tense films this year, Cheap Thrills among them, but nothing beat Captain Phillips on that level. Um, but what completely blindsided me was how even-handed it yeah, was. Yeah, I, I liked that as well about it. Yeah, you, the, the Somali pirates were characters yep. and were driven by real forces and were disparate people. They weren't all the same Yeah, just mass. these faceless black yeah. people. I, I think there's been a lot of stuff attached to this film that's completely incorrect too. I think there's like been what? a lot of... Oh, there's been a lot of... I've heard a lot of reviews saying, oh, it's jingoistic and it glorifies the Navy who come to save. It's like, well, one, that's how it happened. And two, it doesn't take that point of view at all it's it's just this is this is the situation this is the people have to deal with it i think it's similar to something like zero dark 30 in that mm. way there was a scene towards the end that's with the, hanks oh, yeah. that is the oh, best yeah. thing he's done in his career yeah. like it just really breaks you in two that scene yeah that's the best acting it's i've a pity that oscar, ever seen uh, oscars aren't awarded for one scene <laughs> yeah right? i mean he's great throughout the whole film but there's that it just all comes to that moment mm. and he just pays off perfectly my number two film of the year is a film that didn't get much of a release, but it's been around the top of my list since January, and that's Xavier Dolan's film, Lawrence Anyways, which is an absolutely heartbreaking epic about a couple who are... It's it's a straight couple, but the man decides he wants to to be a woman, and it's this 10-year journey as through his gender reassignment and will this relationship survive it. And it's they come together and separate and rise and fall. And it's just boldly cinematic. It's moving. It's truthful. And uh, it has a 22-year-old has no right to be making something that's amazing. Damn it. 22? Yeah. And the emotional maturity in the film is like, You'd think it'd be somebody that's working for decades. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible stuff. And my number one for the year is The Act of Killing. Aha. Which is literally a front row seat to the banality and humanity of what we like to term evil, but is actually something really more complex. And it's just, it's genuine, it's art therapy on an epic scale, and it's genuinely something you've never seen before. Mm. It's it's a gruelling documentary. You probably only see it once, but God, see it. 
Hi everyone, it's Lee here. We had a slight technical problem during the recording of the next segment. Uh, Mel's mic cut out and we didn't actually realise until well after. So our apologies for that. We've compensated as best we could in the mix. The audio quality isn't great, but the discussion is, so please bear with us. Alright Mel, please tell us whom have you picked for your... Hell is for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. Catherine Bigelow. Hooray! Ba-bang! That's right. Okay, there are several reasons why I picked her. The first and most obvious is that she's a woman! She's a what? I know! A woman! <laughs> I've heard of those. woman in here directing things. I wanted to, to look at her because I feel as though she's a, a female filmmaker who deviates from some of the stereotypes of female filmmaking. So... We always tend to associate small domestic scales with um, female filmmakers, um, with uh, women's stories, family stories, and uh, stories that are quite polite and uh, sort of aesthetically, uh, you know, delicate. Mm. Um, whereas Catherine Bigelow's work has been typified by bombast, by stories of, of men and, uh, and bravado, and she's really, really good... I think, in an elemental way of, of getting to the nub of what a film is about. And uh, she uses motif uh, really, really well. And some films that people don't seem to realise were directed by her uh, are directed by her. Mm. Um, I think that we, we have too many stereotypes, particularly with action. She's so good at directing action. And it's a shame that we don't have um, more women sort of going outside what it is expected that female filmmakers do. Mm. Um, also, this is a bit shameful, but I also really like the films of James Cameron. And so I first discovered Catherine Bigelow because she was James Cameron's wife. <laughs> <laughs> What really um, brought me back into the Bigelow fold was The Hurt Locker in mm. 2008. Mm. I just thought what a stupendous character study it was and also just um, beautifully shot and um, such a great uh, eye for action. And then I kind of went back and, uh, and thought about her previous work. I mean, some of which is, is really weird too. Like she's made unorthodox choices. Mm. She hasn't just kind of gone, this is the kind of film I do and has done it again and again. I almost feel as though her recent work, The Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty, has revisited her early work more than it, it has kind of built up on what she was doing throughout, you know, the late 90s and the 2000s. Mm. Interesting. Um, yeah, so I've just been doing a bingealo, <laughs> uh, re-watching all her films from start to finish. Yeah. So, yeah, let's talk about it. I found out she began as a painter, mm. which I find interesting. What you were saying about what we expect of, or what society expects of female filmmakers, and that she went from being a painter, which feels a little cliched, but then became this big action director. In the 1970s, she and a young Philip Glass would renovate apartments and sell them at a, as a, at a profit. Which so is interesting weird. because her, her star in The Hurt Locker, Jeremy Renner, also did that. I was going to spring that fact He's later, so but that's right. alright. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a thing. Yeah, he made his fortune flipping houses. He, he had a fortune? He has a fortune and it comes from flipping houses. He only became really a star with The Hurt Locker. Yeah, because he was a jobbing character actor for about a decade before that. So wow. I like to imagine that's what they talked about on The Hurt Locker. That set. sounds like a sitcom. Catherine Bigelow and Philip Glass <laughs> flipping houses. For a reality show, I would watch that. I would watch the hell out of it. I would actually, I'd hate reality shows and I would actually watch that. <laughs> but um, yeah, her first film, The Loveless, which I hadn't heard of until we... Yeah. We did. I always thought she started with Near Dark, but no, she co-directed this film with Monty Montgomery. And he's a guy who hasn't done a lot, but he's best known for working with David Lynch on some of his work. Mm. 
And I think that's key because this film doesn't really feel like a Bigelow film and it actually feels like it should have been made by Lynch because it's really slow going and you feel like there's a small town menace that Lynch would bring to it. It feels like something made by an acolyte of Lynch. It doesn't feel quite up to Lynch, but it's but it feels like someone an acolyte of Lynch has done this. It's but I'd, I'd say there's shots in it that look like a Bigelow film though. There's certain shots of open roads with that great dusky kind of sky that that is a Bigelow signature and and stuff with motorbikes screeching down the road and and her eye is definitely present from day one. Unfortunately, the cast, other than a young Willem Dafoe... The first film. Yeah. yeah. But other than him, like, nobody else in the film seems really up to the task of, well, feature film acting. So they're kind of, unfortunately, burdened there. But there's enough promise there, with her visually at least, to show that maybe this could be... But I did like its, I did like its play on, on 50s teen movie tropes. Yeah. I thought that was quite... And cool. also on masculinity as well, which I think has been one of her sort of career-defining things that yeah, yeah. interested in. Mm. It's so hard to know how much of it is hers, though. Which is why I do, you know, I mean, obviously we had to mention it because we're talking about her filmography, but her first real film, six years later, uh, 1987's yeah, Near Dark. Six years six later. Years, yeah. There are great big holes, sort of, um, chronologically in her filmography. Mm, yeah. kind of, I wonder what she was doing. Well, there are some TV episodes, there are some music videos, but, yeah, there are big gaps where she doesn't make film for ages. Near Dark is... That's an arrival, isn't it? Isn't that wonderful? So yeah. good. It's this great southern, sweaty southern Texas vampire noir. Mm. And it's, it's not schmaltzy Texas vampire noir in the same way that, say, True Blood. Oh, no, not at all. Mm. I think of it more of a, as a western. Yeah, um, it's got a little... Yeah. Oh, yeah. The element of the road uh, and travelling and like the, the villains sort of blowing into town. Mm. Um, and the kind of There's a few standoffs too. Standoffs across streets yes. and things like that as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what I love about it is um, her use of, of light, which obviously, like, the film kind of implies that there will be a use of light. But, mm. um, the kind of uh, palette that she's able to get out of darkness, um, you know, there, there's the light that you have when it's dark outside, that really harsh mm. indoor light, the pre-dawn mm. light that she uses, and, and sunset as well, just and the silhouetting and backlighting yeah. that she uses is, is just beautiful. Mm. And you want to talk Jim Cameron, half the cast is from Aliens. Well, yeah. What I like as well is seeing the same actors showing up, uh, you know, in subsequent Bigelow films and, and also just in, um, in that extended Bigelow Cameron universe. Yeah. Mm. I wasn't sure if we were going to go down the route of, like, she's a female, but she does action films. Like, I wasn't sure if that would do a disservice to her. But then I saw Blue Steel, which was her next film in 89, where Jamie Lee Curtis's character gets asked, you know, why did you become a cop? You're an attractive woman. Why would you bother? And, you know, it's hard not to read into Mm. that, you know, given Bigelow was a model, she did some acting, you know, she's a very, very beautiful woman. And she makes these, you know, as you say, masculine action films. Mm. Yeah, it's tempting to, to read uh, Blue Steel in a feminist way, but mm. I'm not sure that it is a feminist film. Uh, for me, it's about gunplay and the kind of seductive quality that guns bring and, and the way that, you know, guns are traditionally read as phallic symbols in film, but I think that they're more than that here. I mean, a simplistic reading of Blue Steel would be that Jamie Lee Curtis's character, having grown up in a home where her father beats her mother, mm. uses her gun and her role as a police officer to wrest back a kind of control um, that's based on her gender. But then 
she is in, in other ways quite a traditional sort of um, a noir or a thriller style victim heroine mm. who needs to sort of be rescued by other people and who comes to seem quite weak at various points. Um, and that, that kind of both is and isn't to do with her gun. Um, mm. I, I thought it was quite a, a nuanced idea. Um, yeah. And, about what guns are and what they are. I don't. What do you think about the casting of Ron Silver? Yeah, I'm, I'm never yeah. against the casting yeah. of Ron Silver. I'm a fan. So this is the thing with this film. I really like your reading of it. Actually, it gives the film a lot more credence for me because I feel like it's a. I feel like Blue Steel is a huge missed opportunity. I think the script just goes unnecessarily bonkers in the second half. I for me that film. was so eighties. Films yeah. did that in the eighties. It just becomes more nonsensical, and and it's like this could have been held up as one of the great feminist action films. Like, the first half certainly plays that way. And Jamie Lee Curtis is terrific, and it just and it's slick, and it, it, it looks and feels like a great 80s action film. And it feels like it's going to be one until the script just seems to get out of everybody's hands, and it just becomes almost laughable, which is a shame, because I, I, re- like I still enjoyed it, but I feel like it's a huge missed opportunity. Yeah, I, for, at the same time, it would be so easy to do a story about a woman with a gun who becomes this cartoon superhero kind mm. of thing. You know, a vigilante blowing away, mm. you know, bad men or something. Uh, and I liked the way that Jamie Lee Curtis was vulnerable yes. all the way through, and that the gun did not... It was almost like exacerbating her worst tendencies as well as her best like you could see that she was out of control mm. in a lot of the situations and and she was shaking and, and uncertain and I think that even in the end you know there would be a traditional arc whereby she becomes more confident with the use of the gun both more uh, confident wielding it and also more respectful about what it can do and uh, and more hesitant mm. to use it like she's really gung-ho blam 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 you know mm. at the start of the film like a, a traditional arc would make her a wiser user of the gun. But not if anything, she's even a more cavalier user of the gun. Mm. But I like that she's sort of spiralling out of control and that maybe she's learning that guns, you know, are mm. irrelevant to your idea of social power. Mm. There is a real schlockiness to it that I yeah. think, you know, she's obviously enjoying a lot. And she definitely brings it in point break. You know, that is in, in terms of just like silly... That's what Point Break is, yeah. Yeah. I've never been a massive Point Break fan, but I do, it's like, it's perfectly digestible and it looked like her visuals are stunning. I think it was in Point Break that I realised that she really, really loves slow-mo. Yeah. And she also loves this um, sort of editing technique where you see what a character is realising by actually replaying the moment from earlier. <laughs> yeah. When that happens. Um, and you kind of think, oh, Bigelow, you know, I maybe could have worked that out by myself. <laughs> but, I mean, I like that uh, in Point Break, it's absolutely about the, the play of images and the play of tropes mm. and, and the bravado and the, the kind of, even the faux spiritualism. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you have are just hilarious. And the fact that Keanu Reeves is not a very good actor even works here. When you deploy Keanu in the right way, he's just magnificent. Like in speed, all he really needed to do was was to be constantly in motion. Yes. This is what Bigelow taps into. Like Bigelow is the one that discovered this with Keanu, with Point Break, is that Keanu is magnificent physically. 
Like he's not like emoting, not great. But in terms of physical action, Keanu is still one of the best action heroes out there. She's really kinetic in this film, you yeah. know, in a way that's hypnotic because there are so many repeated shots of, of waves rolling and of surfers gliding mm. in this wonderful way. Mm. I like that it's also about the pleasure of the gaze. Mm. Um, Bigelow has never been ashamed to just look at her characters. I mean, and when we get to talking about Strange Days, we can talk about that a bit more. Mm. But um, in Point Break, it's the, the bodies of the surfers are the object of her sort of loving mm. gaze. There's this wonderful scene where Keanu's showering after surfing, yeah. and he's sort of tossing his head a little bit to and fro under the, the spray of the water just before he gets attacked by the four sort of surfer goons. And that's, it's a very feminised and sexualised image that we more often see women mm. um, in shower scenes uh, doing that, but I like the way that she's willing to go there with Keanu, recognising that it's his body that makes him mesmerising. Mm. Mm. And it's something, again, a male director may not have tapped into. Yeah, maybe. Is, yeah, something we need more of, I think. The way that it's done through such a lens of complete machismo, mm. wonderful, like, mm. young, dumb, full of calm. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, the bravado of the film is fascinating too. Mm. Uh, I, I like the way that it's ultra macho. It's, it's probably, I reckon, the Bigelow film that most regular film goers are prepared to like and that they feel surprised when they learn it was directed by a woman. Right. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And it's a very seminal film for you know a lot of people of our generation. Uh, for, for me growing up, it was Strange Days. It was their next film in 95 that was for the last, you know, nearly 20 years uh, I've always thought of her as the Strange Days director and I always keep an eye out for her name I was like what's the Strange Days director mm -hmm. doing now because you know that was uh, that was one of those films in the 90s that sort of took the techno angle and you know where will technology take us and, and it's so 90s it is, I know I love that this like this is 1999 but like the stuff that couldn't possibly have happened by 2000 and stuff that's like, dude, we all grew out of this by 1996. <laughs> you know, it's this weird dichotomy. There's, I remember when I first saw Strange Days in the cinema and I found it really bombastic and assaultive. And I think watching it again now, the words bombastic and assaultive have since been co-opted and, and mortgaged by Michael Bay and his brethren, but there's still a little too much of a good thing going on here, but there's some wild concepts. I think the first, the opening is incredible. She creates a real world, which I like too. Like you get the feeling his place does feel kind of lived in. There's And the use of the slow-mo, there's a wonderful shot where there's a guy dressed as Santa Claus and two teenage girls run after him and beat him in slow-mo. It's really disturbing. The way that your understanding of the scene flips as the girls catch up with him. You, at first you think they're chasing him, Santa! Yeah. yeah. I, all those shots of just chaos on the streets in LA, it seems to me that Bigelow is fascinated by just those little slice-of-life type scenes. Mm. Um, much as I, I get glimpses of, of the way that she was able to stage that... Um, famous Zero Dark Thirty uh, siege scene, mm. um, the raid scene, from when I was looking at the raid scene in Point Break where the um, FBI agents um, go to the surfer house, I noticed a lot of the things in the Hurt Locker should just um, focus on, you know, the, the gazes of the watching Iraqis or just little street scenes mm. that, um, that happen outside the story. Mm. Um, but here it seems like a, a kind of nightmarish world that she's created that... The sense of chaos and impending disaster mm -hmm. um, in Strange Days is really 
Fascinating. I felt the story is actually its weakest. Yeah, aspect. it loses its way big time in the second half. There, like, I, I, it's a film I watch. I go, there's no reason this is two hours and twenty five minutes long. It just meanders, which is a shame because it, the build up is so great. What I love about the film is how much it respond. It's responding to the the times, like the LA riots yes. and the race stuff, and it's like it explores all the different ways that this one little piece of technology can change our lives. Mm-hmm. It also says something about us. And I find, you know, particularly the, the final scene so grand in scope of both theme and, and visuals. I don't think it's a best film, but it's my favourite. Right. I adore it. Because it was, for many years, your sort of seminal encounter with Catherine Bigelow? I, I think that was, that was partly, yeah. But it was also that it was really saying something and it was... Yeah. It had a message underneath, and I mean, it bombed. It absolutely bombed yeah. financially, and it's a shame that she sort of disappeared for a while. It was five years before her next film, and it, well, she did TV in that time, but mm. um, it wasn't until two thousand that she made uh, the Weight of Water, which is you know when we talked about possession when we were doing yes. Labute. Yes, this is great analogy. This is her possession. It, yeah, Neil Labute's possession. Yeah, this is Catherine Bigelow's version. It kind of feels like the only problem with it is that the script was underwritten, the film was drastically re-edited, they weren't given enough money and no element in it worked. But aside from that, that's the only thing. It is, yeah, it's a disaster. It's a film that I actually found gruelling to get through. And it just feels like everything is disconnected and forced and poorly assembled and even like even her gift for the slow-mo images is really ham-fisted and, and there's a lot of repetition in, in this film oh, and not gorgeous. in like the good bigelow way mm. of repetition because here she's got a different task which is to intercut two stories that are separated by time but that are, that are meant to be thematically linked mm. and i can sort of see the different aesthetics that she's trying to use to to get between them, but then she uses these weird sort of black and white yeah. and grainy yeah. slow-mo type sequences and and you're thinking, what what are the uses of these? And they don't really seem to fit anywhere. It feels completely out of place. Like in the worlds of Strange Days and Point Break and Blue Steel and that sort of, you know, over-the-top kind of bombastic aesthetic, it totally fits. But in this, it's more it's a more kind of domestic situation and she's using these same techniques and it feels like, it, it, it feels like, you know, Tony Scott adapting Henry James or something. It just doesn't feel right. It feels like a terrible fit. She kind of, thankfully, I think, moved on fairly quickly from that. Well, it, yeah, two years later, K-19, The Widowmaker, which, uh, I don't know, it, it's very generic. And that, that, that disappointed me more than The Weight of Water because I can handle filmmakers I love like take, making a complete misfire. But when they're generic and even even though she brought flourishes to it sorry when they're competent competent exactly it's just kind of i mean it's a bit of a dull film it didn't see i I, maybe it was because i expected weight of water to be really interesting i thought it's going to be actually a really insight into catherine bigelow's head and hated it so intensely and then and felt it was such a misfire and felt that she didn't seem connected to it at all coming to k19 the Widowmaker felt like a nice surprise because i was expecting that to be terrible and wound up being quite competent i think that's interesting about the difference between those two films which i think are the weakest in her filmography is that she's adapting an anita shreve novel for um the weight of water and that already has a certain kind of mood to it a certain sentimentality that i think is is not a good fit with bigelow's concerns that she'd shown beforehand and the kind of domesticity of it i don't think was a good fit for her mm, either no. um and then with uh the widow maker she's she's got history but in a different way 
the, the idea of, of trying to be sort of historically accurate to real life, well, it was inspired by real life yeah. events. Again, she's trapped in this framework of, of history, mm. and I, I think that um, she kind of is just sort of playing out, it felt like a pageant to me, uh, she's playing out a story. But one thing I really liked about uh, K-19, The Widowmaker, which, the worst title, yeah. I mean, although I do get to make the joke, don't hate The Widowmaker, hate the game. <laughs> um, what I do like is the sense of dread and doom that suffuses the film, mm. uh, all, the, all the way through the, like, the disastrous like incompetence of, of the crew under pressure and the way that the, the damn sub is always leaking and <laughs> things are going wrong with it left, right and centre. But it reminded me of Strange Days, that, that same atmosphere of, of fear and dread that, that everything's mm. going to pieces. Mm. Uh, I liked that. I felt that that was something that was um, Bigelow-esque. Yeah. To me, and and she also had some nice shot transitions that I thought were you know they had some uh, wit and flair to them. Mm -hmm. There was this lovely shot where a basket of oranges is being delivered all the way through the sub. And that, yes. don't you think that um, the genre of submarine movies must be one of the hardest to shoot, mm. just logistically, when you think about all the tight cramped spaces. Yeah, like I mean, there were some shots that were clearly steadicam shots because they had that kind of that weird tension between uh, movement and non-movement mm. that Steadicam has. But also there were shots that were clearly track shots. Like mm. they must have just had this like sausage-like submarine <laughs> set and just laid down tracks all the way through it. Because yeah. you never saw the floor of the submarine, did you? Mm. Oh, sometimes. Yeah, like when they were dragging people out of the radioactive area and things <laughs> like that. I also liked that it was a fully, a, a fully from the point of view of the Russians. There was this pro, it didn't quite try to, and it didn't try to nail American values into the Russian story. It was all about the Russian communist values and all about respecting yes. chain, chain of command of the leader and do it for the state and all that sort of thing. And then they get screwed over by the state. And it's, I really like that about it. And so stoic about it as well. Oh, well, if this is what command wants, yeah. just do it. Then. And they'll just shut up and do it. <laughs> but this is my favourite part of the Bigelow story because there's... A six-year gap, K-19 didn't do particularly well. I don't see anything on the horizon as, you know, are we ever going to see another Bigelow film again? And then, what a comeback. I know, right? It's almost like uh, Near Dark 2. Like, yes. Like, the way that she's, she just comes with mm. this fully formed, exquisite, you know, film. I was blown away by it. I feel like she's found her aesthetic now, like between this and Zero Dark Thirty. Her locker and yeah, and yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, not not just the aesthetic, but the the idea of uh, I guess commenting on real life events and mm. doing them with with a with a real sense of verisimilitude and mm. sort of documenting the times. Yeah, it's very much. I mean, I, the it's a it's a character study and a procedural we get here, filtered through this kind of you know grimy on the ground verite. Because Verite had never really been a feature of her work before this. No. And this is suddenly something she takes to in Hurt Locker in a big, bad way. Like the constant push-ins and yeah. close-ups and, and, and kind of like, like, a, like a, a combat um, journalist. Yeah. But at the same time, a lot of the aesthetic things uh, in Hurt Locker I recognise. Like I mentioned the, um, I mentioned the, the things from uh, Strange Days, the, the street asides. Um, but I also think that there's that beautiful scene where Jeremy Renner goes sort of running through the streets. Yeah. 
and it's sort of as, as dusk is falling or in twilight mm-hmm. and that kind of nighttime stuff reminded me of near dark as well. Yeah. She's always been really, really into images of people running around, mm. lots of, um, of chases and, and running um, mm-hmm. and action. Uh, she's always been really good at that, that shot where you see a room and then you see someone's reaction to what's in the room. She's good at using a single shot to show both someone's point of view perspective and then their reaction. And I think Strange Days was fascinating because it was so dependent on point of view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's such a difficult um, shot to use because you have to show all the things in a point of view while still being plausible within that point of view that an audience member needs to understand what the, what the scene is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like the way that she, she focuses her camera on, you know, for instance, in The Hurt Locker, it's the bomb, you know. Mm-hmm. Where is the bomb? It's, as you said, Paul, it's a procedural. Where's the bomb? How's he going to fix the bomb? Mm-hmm. Um, but what I like about it is that she gets back to the old ideas of, um, of macho sort of uh, masculinity that she, she mm-hmm. used before. And that's what I think is so devastating about The Hurt Locker. It's, it's a procedural, but it's also a portrait of a guy who's been thoroughly broken by yeah. the environment that he's working in. And that wonderful scene towards the end where he returns home and he's aimlessly walking around a supermarket. Yeah. Yeah. And you just think, my God, this guy's not normal. You've seen him at work. You've seen him when he's alive. And then you realise he's only ever alive when he's in the presence of mortal danger. Yeah. When he's trying to be a normal person, he's just dead. And that's the most devastating realisation. And the way he looks so happy when he's going back to you know, his next deployment. That's why I get a little bit annoyed when, and I'm, I mean, it's crossed my mind once or twice myself, but the more you watch these films, you sort of realise that they're not rah-rah pro-American exactly. military statements at all. Like, this one is a character study about how someone has been thoroughly broken by the war machine. Mm-hmm. And Zero Dark Thirty is, I mean, it's it's a, you look at uh, Sarah, Jessica Chastain's character and you get much the same result. This is somebody who has devoted her life to this cause and she's hollowed out. Exactly. And that's, and, that's and the that's thing that films have always done is they're not just action films. She cares about character. Yeah. And, yeah, that's I think that's what Hurt Locker and Zero Dark 30 really coalesced is, and, and, and that's why it was so exciting to see, you know, she won Oscars, she her films made a ton of money, she got critical acclaim and everyone's saying, isn't Bigelow amazing? And I'm like, yes, finally. <laughs> everyone's caught up to what we knew all along which is that she's this incredible filmmaker. And we're still feeling the influence of her early films today. We would not have the Fast and the Furious franchise, the biggest franchise in the world right ah, now, yes. without Point Break. Exactly. It's all, it all comes from her, and, and mm, I don't exactly. think she gets the credit she deserves for that influence on current-day cinema. Yeah, I think that she's, um, she's a connoisseur of, of moments, you know, wonderful images, like that wonderful scene in Point Break, you know, where... Keanu shoots his gun up into the air. Mm. Parody in Hot Fuzz. In Hot Fuzz, of course, yeah. <laughs> Which says a lot about the influence that her work has had. But that, that she chose that particular image is so fascinating when what she wants to communicate is that he can't bring himself to hurt his friend. Mm. That he realises that he is both the law enforcer and the friend and he can't reconcile those roles. Yeah. And so it's just a... It's a, a sort of pent-up frustration and anger that he's releasing as well as the bullets that he's got to use that he's fired his gun to, you know, satisfy his superiors. So mm. I just like that it's, it's a moment that's cool and yet it's also a moment that makes sense for the character and for the story. Yeah. Um, it, it's emotionally it's resonant. Rage, you know, it's just... Yeah, and, mm. and again, with the, the use of guns too to, 
to signify all sorts of things. The, the guns are, are in all her films, except obviously for The Weight of Water, where it was axes. <laughs> <laughs> there should have been a gun in that film. Yeah. I was fantasizing about a gun during that film. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, as far as I like that, that is her only bad film to this point. Like, I think all the others have some value. Um, I even find some value in The Weight of Water, even though I think it's a really, it's a failed film in many ways. I, I think that at least, I think she's done a better job than another director might have done with the same material. It's, it's still a little bit more idiosyncratic than you could expect, like from a, oh, I don't know, a Jane Campion mm. or something. Mm. But it's an exciting time because, like I said, there was that period after K-19 where I thought, are we ever going to see a film mm. from her? And now we're like, of course she's going to have another film. And it's exciting to anticipate that this stage of her career, knowing that we're in the midst of it. Do you think she will continue in that kind of verite style? Yeah, well, there's a film she was trying to make before Zero Dark Thirty, which I don't know if it's still on the cards, but I hope it is. It's about sort of the, a violent um, Mexican border town. Uh, a border town between oh, Mexico and the US, which I think Tom Hanks was attached to for ages. And I think a triple it, frontier or whatever yeah, it's called. Yeah, but I hope she does get to make it because it sounds incredible. She doesn't fall into a rut. Yes. Mm. Um, because one thing that I like about her filmography is that she's always tried different things, different genres, different approaches, but always with a kind of recognisable bigelowness mm. uh, to it. I mean, there's nothing that you can so crassly say is, you know, her overriding concern as a filmmaker. Like, you know, she's not into, like, the American dream or, like, yeah. masculinity or femininity. Mm. But um, I like that she does surprising things with familiar material and she does it in such a beautiful, stylish way. One thing that, that I want to say about her films that strikes me is that they're often so gorgeous to look at and they're about the act of looking as well. Mm. Um, in Zero Dark Thirty, one of the most noteworthy things is that she actually shot the final uh, raid sequence through the same um, night vision goggles that the uh, actors and, you know, the soldiers in the original one were wearing. So it's rather than applying some kind of special effect in post-production, she's actually trying to get that same experience of looking. Mm. And, and that's what I find fascinating about her, is that she's, she is fascinated by the act of looking and the gaze. I don't want to sound all film theory talking about the gaze, <laughs> um, especially when she's done so, so much material that's so tempting for a feminist reading. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they're beautiful films to look at. Do you see her... Do you see her identifying with Maya at all The zero in Zero Dark Thirty? Do you... Maybe. Mm. Again, that's a tempting thing to read into it. Exactly. Like, like but, but is it? Like, that's the thing. Is it a something that we, we're sort of reading into this? Or is this kind of a statement as well as, I'm interested in this story, but I can tell this story as well? Well, it's, it seems quite ambivalent. Like, uh, throughout most of the film, I feel like we're there with Maya. We're in her perspective. And we're sort of cheering her on as she does things. But it's so fascinating. The very first scene where she's introduced, she's kind of shown to be this vulnerable woman kind of uh, character uh, during the interrogation scene. Mm. And then she's revealed to be this absolute merciless ball breaker and being a woman is something that she kind of uses to her advantage in her work. Mm. Um, but I also sense that you get the feeling as the film goes on that she's kind of manic and you're, you're meant to kind of go, well, hang on, Maya, you're, you're getting a bit obsessed. The way that she kind of keeps writing with the whiteboard marker the number mm. of days that they've been searching. Yeah. That was when I'm kind of like, oh, God, I kind of sympathise with her co-workers now. 
But that final scene where she's lost all her purpose in life now that she's mm-hmm. got Osama and uh, just the the emptiness, the husk, the... It reminded me so much of The Hurt Locker, the emptiness of that character as mm-hmm. well. So I think that she's sympathising with what... Uh, an ideology does to someone not sympathising with that person themselves but she's kind of letting you figure out what the ideology is and what it's doing to someone and I think that at the end you're meant to feel sympathetic to Maya because what will life hold for her now that her purpose is is gone well Mel thank you so much for joining us and talking through Bigelow my absolute pleasure um, to be a hyphenate Thank you so much. We're privileged to have you. And we'll see the rest of you next year. I've seen the future, and it's a bald-headed man from New York. (laughs) 